Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Johnny Rayzone of Holland Rays, offering Nashville-inspired hot chicken in LA. Listen as Johnny shares stories from his upbringing, his culinary ventures as head chef at numerous restaurants, and now running Holland Rays. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Johnny Rayzone of Holland Rays. Johnny, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Definitely, thanks for having me. Of course. So we typically like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood? Definitely. So I uh, grew up in Los Angeles, California. Uh, more specifically, I grew up in Echo Park, Silver Lake uh, kind of area. Um, grew up to a very, you know, ethnically diverse uh, schools, public schools, you know. So uh, us being Caucasian, we were actually the minority in the 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 school, which was, I attribute a lot of my uh, passion for LA to, you know, growing up amongst just whether it's Latin or just all different ethnicities. Um, so grew up, grew up out there and stayed in LA, you know, for, for most of my life, just born and bred uh, out here. And um, yeah, in, in terms of just the, the birth of myself, that's what, that's where it all started. And uh, in terms of the schooling, you know, that that's kind of, where little Johnny was uh, roaming about. Amazing. So would you say that you had an entrepreneurial mindset, uh, lemonade stands or selling products? Uh, what were some of your passions growing up? So I grew up uh, with the passion and kind of goal of playing uh, collegiate basket- basketball and okay. eventually going to like the NBA. I was about six foot two and um, basketball was kind of what I lived and breathed with one of my best friends at the time, you know, just my childhood best friend was just always around, you know, he was always sleeping over and stuff. And we were always just, whether it's shooting, you know, 40 free throws in a row or 60 free throws in a row, really competitive uh, nature with him. And um, yeah, it was, it was live or die basketball, you know, and uh, eventually that kind of took a turn as I realized how quick a injury could, you know, throw your whole career off. So it doesn't matter if you shoot, you know, 20,000 free throws or, you know, you're doing it so many hours in a day, one little injury can just throw the whole thing off. And I didn't, I, I realized I didn't want to go into like, whether it's uh, broadcasting or coaching or things like that. I just really enjoyed the sport and the competitive yeah. nature to the sport. Um, so after school, I saw some parallels in um, cooking, you know, in a kitchen and the whole, dancing in the kitchen whether you're making a pivot move like like Shaq did a lot of drop steps you know in the paint and stuff like that and there's this beautiful kind of dance to being in the kitchen that I kind of correlated in terms of the two and also with cooking I saw it more as a platform um, to express so many different things but also you can take it so many different ways Mm -hmm. um, than basketball so I kind of made that shift after after high school definitely so what was this transition like? So you're saying it's in high school. Um, did you end up going into culinary school directly or what was that period like right after high school for yourself? No, yeah, so I just entered the workforce um, with uh, a entry level kind of dishwashing prep cook job at a French bistro called Figaro Bistro. And uh, that kind of parlayed into, you know, reading Anthony Bourdain books, studying, I ordered like a cheap, CIA textbook that was used off of um, Amazon at the time. Amazon was really just selling books. I don't know if people forget, like that's what they started with was just selling books, you know? Yeah. 
and like putting Barnes and Noble and all those vet borders out of business. And so I kind of just developed this. I've always had this intensity and this focus of, you know, if I'm going to do something, I want to, I want to give it 110% kind of thing. So after working, you know, whether it's an eight, 10 hour, 12 hour shift, I would go home and study the textbook or read Bourdain or Michael Ruhlman, Soul of a Chef, Reach of a Chef. He has some great, great books as well. And I just immersed myself in the, the culture. Definitely. So I'm curious at those early stages in your uh, fascination, were you driven or inspired by a specific culture or specific dish and entree? What was that like? Were you drawn to something specific or was it just wide culinary and spectrum? Yeah. And in, in the beginning of my career, it was very much so focused on French cuisine and Italian cuisine uh, with a heavy, a heavy focus on French okay. um, because uh, their techniques, whether it's the mother sauces or different you know, uh, terminology within cuisine and cooking. It was, it was so, seemed so much more advanced or maybe well-documented versus other cultures. You know, I mean, yeah. if, if, if we were to say, you know, if we're talking about like making a birria de ris or something like that, and we're talking about caramelization of the meat and we're talking about, um, you know, the different, uh, forms of execution on cooking a piece of meat or you know whether it's braising i feel like the the french really documented everything and there's so much to study on that and it really is not so much french food but it's more so the technique yeah. and so um it started out as an interest in french food but uh i realized the reason why i was interested in french food was because there was so much emphasis on technique mm. Got it. So when I was reading some of your bio, um, you have a very impressive uh, resume prior to Helen Ray. So that's working for others, culinary. I'm curious if you don't mind kind of explain your journey when you started into the French culture and how that has expanded into your opportunities at some other cuisines as well. Definitely. I mean, I feel like it's been a lot of the moves that I try to make in my career are stepping stones. And also, um, I like to, if I'm going to work somewhere like, like minimum commit for like a year two, three years, maybe, because mm -hmm. that's the way you get the most out of the situation. Albeit as long as you're not getting treated like shit or garbage, you know, and it's like yeah. uninspiring. But if, but at the same time, that can be a positive thing too in your career is to get treated, you know, uh, terribly because for example, for, for me, you know, working for, you know, like Gordon Ramsay and working in those kitchens taught me what not to do or how not to treat people because I, I remember the feeling of like, fuck, I got to go to work, you know? Um, yeah. Sorry, I should have asked if it's uh, cursing or no cursing. No, you're before. good, you're good. Uh, the, the feeling of like, uh, man, I got to go to work and I, I don't want to go or I, I don't want to see that dude that's going to curse me out or throw something at me kind of thing. It was never a positive, you know, experience in that and so with Howlin I wanted to kind of create uh the opposite which is like mm. they're excited to go to work they're learning so much their personal lives are developing etc uh but to give you a high level kind of overview in terms of my career you know go from Figaro Bistro um as like an entry-level prep cook work um some private chef gig kind of like just uh, figuring out where I wanted to work I knew I wanted to work for Thomas Keller he was a huge uh, Titan at the time in terms of the culinary industry, Gordon Ramsay as well. I mean, I, I would binge watch all those kitchen nightmare shows. I love that show. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's a great show for any aspiring chef or even restaurant manager to watch. And at the same time, it's entertaining, you know? Um, so I eventually landed a job with <clears throat> Hans Rocking Wagner in Venice. Um, so I moved out there cause I didn't have a car at the time and I just had a skateboard and I, uh, would, I by necessity have to live close to, to wherever I was working because yeah. the hours were so like, it would be like 10, 12, 13, 14 hours. Wow. Um, because at the time it wasn't, it, it's not, it, it, it was a different time in the kitchen world than it is now. Mm. Um, both in the treatment of employees, but also the abuse of like, you know, OT and, and things like mm. that. Like now the laws have gotten more rigid and you have to really follow that, you know? Yeah. Whereas before, um, it was a little more loose, I would say. Definitely. Um, and so worked for Hans Rock and Wagner for a little bit. And then uh, Gordon Ramsay was opening um, Ramsay at the London um, mm -hmm. on the Sunset Strip. And uh, luckily, I applied probably about a year prior to it opening. And they were filtering through the resumes, saw mine. I, I uh, managed to land an interview for that and got on the opening team there, which was a great experience to see how Ramsey and, and his team opened up a restaurant and eventually I think we got a Michelin star while Michelin was still in LA. Wow. Um, and um, that was a great experience. And the hours that I was working there was about nine to 10 a day. And I felt like I could handle a little bit more. Um, so I took on a butcher job, like uh, butchering fish at Nobu LA. Um, yeah. And that was probably about it. That was more of a part-time four to six hour shift. Um, so I was doing those two jobs simultaneously, um, for about two years and, um, literally my days were just wake up, you know, and then walk to work, <laughs> you know, go uh, walk after my shift is over, walk to the other job Wow. and then, uh, go home. And I remember at times, um, being able to blink and, you close your eyes and you open them and it's like the next day. And it was just this insane feeling of exhaustion. And, um, but it was, it was like, that was my school, you know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, at the time I think minimum wage was like eight bucks an hour and uh, the rent in, on sunset strip was really expensive. So that was another motivating factor for having a second job, but it was amazing. I mean, I got to butcher fish for four hours a day, six hours a day, and then go, work as the fish entremetier at Gordon Ramsay's. And, uh, it was amazing. I was like, I mean, luckily I didn't have a girlfriend or a wife yeah. or anything at the time. Cause if I did, it'd probably be really, really difficult to manage all of that. <laughs> Definitely. But it was something that really taught me a lot about discipline, about, um, time management and consistency. And I still use all, all those to this day. Mm. Now I don't recommend doing it for long periods of time because it can make it drive you insane, yeah. but it is something where when I look back on my career, it's something that did give me a notch on the belt or more grit in my teeth kind of thing, you know, Definitely. and, um, help shape my career. From there, I went to be a member of the opening team at Bouchon in Beverly Hills with Tom's Keller's team. Wow. And, um, that, that was a great experience as well. I mean, these guys, they, they just have been doing it so long and their structures and even things like, like when you talk about core values, you know, like, like, yeah. like with, like if, if your podcast is a company, what is your company's core values? If I were to ask you that, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, 
or even like, you know, Jack Dorsey of Twitter or whatever, you know, like, like these yeah. big business owners and businessmen uh, having core values. And I, and that really opened up the business side to me as a chef that it's way more than you think. It's not just so mm. much about your mise en place or executing a recipe. It's also, you're cooking with people. You're cooking with yeah. um, your team and, and also you're giving them food for thought. You're giving them reasons to be inspired. You're giving them structure and balance and stuff. And that was a great education. From there, I went to um, a restaurant called La Poubelle and I took an executive chef job. And I think I, I waited like six, seven years to take my first executive chef job because I had a lot of offers, but I, I, I didn't want to go too fast, you know, and I yeah. feel like that's something that, because keep in mind, I didn't go to culinary school or anything like that. That's something I saw yeah. a lot of culinary, culinary student graduates doing throughout their career and then maybe fizzling out or getting burnt out or not handling the pressure, whatever. So I really took my time. I didn't have um, the pressure of like wanting to be the boss right away, you know, and a lot of people, yeah. I feel like their ego can get the best of them sometimes and they want to be the boss. They want to be the jefe, the patron, you know, like... And for me, luckily, I didn't have that desire as bad. So it took me about like six, seven years to finally get to being called like a boss or a chef or something like that. Definitely. And so at La Poubelle, we, with the help of my now wife, but at the time kind of I was courting her. I was trying to, you know, get with her. Um, I was, <laughs> I've always had a, uh, we actually met at an Indian restaurant that I worked at for a brief stint. Um, and I've always had an attraction to her and mentally also just she's piqued my interest she was like a sarah's like a challenge slash you know uh equal in that sense yeah. and um we started talking again and then she was the gm at la Poubelle and um she said they're looking for a chef and i thought it'd be a great opportunity but looking back on it now i mean like that was hard, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm the front, I'm the back of the house. She's the front. I mean, there was a lot of fights, a lot of broken drywall in I'm our sure. apartment, you know? Um, but that was a great experience because that taught me how to run a restaurant, you know, yeah. like uh, where there was no one else that was doing it in the sense of it, it was all on me. Right. And, yeah. and then she was in the front and, and she was extremely talented and so ahead of her time at that time. Cause like Instagram, social media, it wasn't even a, as popular as it is now, but she was already yeah. go going into that and doing all of that and like thriving. And she's so creative and uh, gifted as an artist that it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it was, you, you can recognize it when someone's definitely just like ahead of their time. And definitely. so we were able to, you know, increase the sales of that restaurant by, by a hefty number. Um, uh, I think like 300% or something like that in a matter of three, four years. And um, then my father, uh, he died and I, it was kind of a traumatic, um, way of me finding out, uh, one night at service, it was a Friday night or something like that. Uh, I got a call from one of his friends and his friend said, Oh, Ray missed a 3d meeting and he never missed 3d meetings. He was like super annual about that. It was, he was yeah. the king of 3d. So like he needed to hold court, if you will, with all his 3d nerd friends and stuff. Um, and um he missed that meeting and then so I, I drove to his house and it was a really weird sensation because it felt like it was morning so like for example newspapers out in front you know doors locked lights aren't you know necessary lights still on you know it, it felt like someone did 
didn't wake up kind of thing. Yeah. So immediately right off the bat, there was a really foreboding, you know, cloud. Um, and so I took my keys, opened the, opened the, the front door and I'm just screaming out like dad, dad, you know, and wow. go, go into the bathroom and then his body's just there naked out of the shower, stone cold, you know, like cold body. Cause it was wow. at nighttime um, from service. And so, and it, it, it probably was there since morning, you know, cause it, all the signs were pointing to morning. Yeah. Um, and that experience kind of was a jolt to my system in the sense of, you know, a huge realization of how life, how short life is yeah. a huge realization of, you know, uh, taking care of yourself. Um, but also losing someone, for me in my life, I mean, as most people should, you should be your, you're going to be your own worst enemy, you yourself. Yeah. But then you have other figures in your life that can influence or that you do things for, i.e. your parents or a well-respected, you know, brother or sibling or colleague, etc. And for me, that was, other than myself, the only person that I really wanted to impress other than my wife, you know, like with my career accolades and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that was, a, that was an interesting moment in, in, in time for me. And it kind of pushed me to the edge where I was just like, fuck it. Like, uh, you know, I, 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 yeah, I'm making great money as an executive chef, all this stuff, but I want to do, I want to do something a little bit bigger and I want to explore, go deeper into at the time, what it was with Southern food, antebellum Southern food. I was hugely inspired and, fascinated by what Sean Brock was doing um, mm. at the time. And still to this day, I mean, he's, he's really like a gem slash, I don't know, like he's in his own way, like this institution of knowledge, this body of knowledge and also in pushing himself. I mean, I was so fascinated by that. So I booked the flight out to Nashville and uh, staged at his restaurant. Stodge is just working for free basically. Got offered a job and discovered hot chicken and was just like, holy shit, this is amazing. I've never had this before. And if I, how cool would it be to be able to say, uh, oh, I brought something to LA that LA has never had before. Yeah. You know, and, and it's never been about money or, or finances or anything like that. And still isn't because we're turning down so many different, you know, deals and franchise and this and that. It, it was always about like, let's introduce the city of LA, the city that I love, the city that I grew up in. Um, something it's never had before. And that's, that's hard to have that opportunity. You know what I mean? So yeah. I just, I just wanted to jump on it um, with, with the passion for that, but also the passion for hot chicken and, and, and what, what it meant to me in terms of Southern food. And also when I had it, how I just fell in love with it. So definitely that's the, that's the short story kind of, wow. you know, I, I try to keep it tight, but uh, that's where, that's how we're here. That, that's amazing. So that experience in Nashville, did you say you were working for another company or was that just a, a quick trip? I was working for free uh, for Sean Brock. Wow. And we went to go get lunch or maybe I went to go get lunch. Uh, and then one of his uh, waiters uh, showed me another spot called Hattie B's and then I discovered Prince's and then uh, it just took off from there, you know? Uh, yeah. How would you describe like your, your prior career, uh, more cuisine and I would say elegant style dishes to discovering this Nashville, more finger type, finger held dish? How was that transition? Well, it goes back to like when, when I originally, when I became a chef, I always had a fascination for 
like a dream of like, okay, I'm a, I, I'm a well-known chef, right? And this is a dream. It's a fantasy. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm known for cooking fine dining, but I'm in a shack, like at a car wash, you know, those, those shacks at the car wash that sell tacos or sell burgers yeah. or whatever. Um, but I'm in that setting, right? So you have this like Porsche that can cook, you know, bechamel sauces, mother sauces, plate food with tweezers, you know, do smoke encapsulated shit or tea smoked chicken wings or, you know, uh, apple caviar, you know, like weird. Yeah. Who has that capability, but he's actually just making burgers or, you know, something simple for the people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why I say the diversity of, of, of growing up in the schools that I grew up or getting the education that the public education that I got up until high school, no college or anything that was a heavy hand, mm. you know, whether it's eating tacos on the corner or having fries out of the bag that are, you know, 60 cents or something like that. Like, and then being around so many different cultures, it taught me this humility, you know, that I feel like, uh, help shape my career because I always had this dream or fascination with being a fine dining chef, but cooking, you know, modest, humble food for people at a fair price. And then that to me would be a successful venture because Mm. that chef could be doing multi-course meals, but instead he's doing something simple at a very high level, very high level, high execution, so much higher than other places because maybe other places are just ordered in frozen, order it from Cisco. I mean, there's so many franchise places that just, they just, they want one vendor for everything, paper goods, chicken, vegetables. And it's like, we have like, like six different vendors for specific things, you know, whether it's our spices, whether it's our chicken, whether it's our paper goods, whether it's our teas, whether it's our, and it's like to take that execution to something simple where most like, subways or mcdonald's they order from one thing for everything you know what i yeah. mean and it's like to take that level of execution and apply it to something simple like a fried chicken sandwich or a burger i thought would be very successful um, because yeah. a lot of people i think confuse our success for you know hot chicken uh, and think that oh i'm gonna sell hot chicken and i'll have long lines out the door every day you know yeah it's actually there's a lot more to it um and hospitality and all of that. So, 100%. um, so that was a fascination that I had. So that's kind of an answer to why finger food or why modest food or why, you know, something more approachable than say a $300 meal. Definitely. So I'm curious, you mentioned the, the vendors there starting this and transitioning to LA then what do you, especially with your experience prior, what do you look for in a vendor when they're providing the ingredients that your end customer is going to get? What's important mm-hmm. to you from a vendor? Uh, yeah, the same thing we look for from employees or from landlords or from any business partners is the, the respect of um, like where your customer, right? Um, yeah. Or vice versa, you know, that level of respect, that level of equality in the relationship we're going to help you. You're going to help us. And uh, through the relationship, we want to build a long-term relationship. And as a rela- relationship develops and, and becomes more long-term, then you can ask for favors or you can ask for very niche specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, the hustle mentality, you know, is, is very important um, in the way I do business. And when I say that, I mean, you know, trying to get the most out of any situation, um, 
any any relationship, whether it's with an employee or even a customer or 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 a vendor. And so that sense of equality is very important. For example, with uh, us leasing this 800 South Arroyo Pasadena location, mm. the owners of that location own uh, Geary's in Beverly Hills, which is a jewelry store that specializes in Rolexes and things like that. And we were able to negotiate a, a free Rolex. Uh, I think they were thinking it was for me, but I actually gave it to one of my employees. And this employee has, you know, six children. And mm. I knew he would never buy something like that for himself. Um, and so to be able to offer that to him and have that peace stay in his family and get passed down to his multiple children, yeah. it creates an impact. So if you can build relationships as such with your vendors or your landlords and you can kill multiple birds with one stone, um, you know, call PETA or whatever, but you, you can do multiple things with one kind of swift move. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about for me. A hundred percent. So you're bringing this, uh, this amazing fine dining, uh, quality chicken from Nashville to LA. I'm curious, the location I'm sure is very important with, uh, the launch of the company. So what made you choose a location that you you've resided at for the most part for the truck and how did that perform? We, we started out as a truck and being truck and mobile was a great way to gauge, you know, okay, our sales are here. Our sales are this at this location. Our sales are this, our sales are this. What's yeah. an area in which maybe it's in between both of our busiest locations. And that's essentially what we did. And then, um, in terms of Chinatown and the specific four walls that we opened in, that's all we could afford. I did not want to, mm. when you experience like a cold dead body like that, and it's your father, you don't want to get everything up into the point that you've kind of worked for your whole life. You don't want to just give it away and be an easy trick or, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. and that's also why I never franchised this because everything that I've worked up to this point why would I just give that to some rich dude that has money? You know definitely, what I mean? Like, definitely. And, and so what's interesting about that is that something I'm working on with my employees is like um, pursuing your passions, pursuing what you love, pursuing what makes you happy mm. instead of pursuing money. Cause then when you're pursuing what you love and what makes you happy, money pursues you. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a big one for us because we've never, been in it for that and um it's been a great mindset that's helped us helped us out but in terms of the location that's all we could afford because we're self-funded yeah 100 percent. so uh introducing this la um the nashville style i'm curious how does this would you describe to the listeners differ from a, a traditional maybe fried chicken that we might recognize from maybe like a a grocery store etc yeah well it's hard now because there's so many different iterations, right? Yeah. So like there's places that serve it on a hot dog bun. There's places that only serve it in tenders. There's places that, you know, um, chop it up and do it like our Mario fries and stuff. So, you know, what, hot, what natural hot chicken is and what it originated as was quarter pieces. Mm. Um, and the quarter pieces are in reference to a breast quarter or a leg quarter. And, what most people associate with fried chicken is eighth cuts. Now, one fourth or a quarter is literally a chicken cut into four, right? Yeah. Uh, 
And then one eighth is a chicken cut into an eighth. And that's how KFC sells it, Popeyes, et cetera. So you have the thigh and the drum separate. But mm. if you attach the thigh and the drum together, that's a quarter piece and it takes a lot longer to cook. Um, but the results are much, uh, much more crispy, much more juicy in the middle. There's just, it's just a lot more love that's put into it because you have to be, it takes a little more skill to do it like that than it does to just say, take an eighth cut and throw it in a pressure fryer. Yeah. So Nashville hot chicken originated as these quarter pieces, you know, and um, when I had these quarter pieces for the first time, I was blown away because I've never had it before. So in terms of origination of Nashville hot chicken, first and foremost, there's the, the butchery of the chicken and how it's served, mm -hmm. um, which is in the quarters. And then you go into the application of the spice and how that spice is applied. And it's really interesting because in Nashville, you'll have quite a few Nashville hot chicken places and they all kind of do it a little bit differently and they have their own swag to their, their own style that they uh, utilize when preparing their products. And so each one's, you know, has subtle differences. Mm. Um, but the overall concept, you know, remains the same in, in the sense of, you know, kind of dipping it in, in an oil-based sauce and then applying spice. Um, and in that sauce, you can have so many different things. Mm. Um, and, you know, having it at least be true in terms of heat level. And Definitely. so if it's a medium, it's probably going to be like what most people consider a hot. And if it's a hot, it's going to rip your face off, you know, like, and then yeah. if you go even past that, <clears throat> your stomach's going to hurt. You're going to, maybe depending how your body reacts, maybe you go to the bathroom right away or maybe next day, you know, you have to go to the bathroom and it's very painful. And then you have nightmares in the night, however your body responds to it. But I think that LA has too many things that are already watered down so much, whether mm. it's, um, you know, like Americanized this, Americanized that or, or whatever. And we didn't want to water it down. We wanted to stay true to what Nashville hot chicken is in Nashville and okay. represent it, represent it with pride and, um, standards and consistency and um you know truth to what the original um was mm -hmm. so being one of the pioneers uh in la with this style then i'm curious what did the marketing strategies look like then and then also today to prove that this is truly a nashville style dish in la yeah i mean it's word of mouth it's customer service it's hospitality it's uh transparency with with the customers yeah. um those are some key elements to our marketing strategy and and how we um represent the brand you know truthfulness uh humility um you know and, and integrity of the product um uh, all these things embody what we do on a daily basis and also um what we're proud of and what our customers are proud of and that's why yeah. they fuck with us definitely so from that marketing and also uh just sales in general can you depict maybe a main demographic uh for the food uh, in terms of age or ethnicity? Um, I, I guess both, if you, if you can. Yeah, I mean, the age group is uh, probably in the 16 to late 30s. I mean, it's a very wide age group demographic. But if you want to go specific, maybe 20 to 36 or some 34. Yeah. Uh, and then um, in terms of ethnicities, it's very split between all I mean, we're Chinatown super close to South Central LA. So, yeah. uh, you know, in South Central LA, there's a predominant African-American, you know, community and we get a lot of African-American, uh, clientele. We get a lot of Asian clientele. Um, mm -hmm. the least 
clientele maybe is white people or Caucasian. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm, it's really hard though. Cause I mean, if you've been down to the restaurant in the line, this is one of the most beautiful things about the restaurant to me too, is that you look at the line, literally there was one day where I think it was Andrew Bynum, an ex Laker was standing in line and he's like six foot 10 or something. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this family uh, with the uh, probably like, like Filipino family that there's a grandma, the daughter, and then the daughter's daughter. And, it, and then they're standing next to Andrew Bynum and he's like super tall. And then behind him, you have like these sneaker heads, you know, yeah. like, like hipster, like LA cats, LA kids. And it's like, that's our line. That's, and that's something about Nashville and specifically Arnold's meeting three in Nashville. That's amazing and beautiful. Is it like for everyone from all walks of life is going there. It's not just limited to if you have money or not, you can, yeah. you can, anyone can get it like a, a $10 sandwich, you know, um, and not anyone, but you know, what I'm trying to get across Definitely. is that your, your clientele is that much more diverse. So if it's executed like at a high level, then everyone's going to fuck with it. Everyone's going to be like, this is really good. So our demographic is, is, is one of the most beautiful things about Howland. It's so diverse. It's so different. And I love it. You know? Yeah. That's amazing. I'm, I'm curious. I end each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur uh, from your, your career, uh, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret? Just yeah. Nothing. Right now um, I'm big on, it takes 21 days to form a habit. Uh, and it takes 90 days to change your lifestyle. So great job on, you know, doing a week of uh, working out or studying another language or something like that. But keep in mind that it takes 21 days just to make it a habitual process and 90 days to change a lifestyle on it. Because so, I feel like a lot of people want to make change and they want to they wanna improve and rise to greatness and, and, and succeed. But can be off put by the fact that like it's hard work it, it takes discipline it takes the time you know being put it in, into place but once you yeah. once it becomes a part of your lifestyle once greatness is associated with your lifestyle or once uh, a certain aspect to whatever it is you want to grow or learn upon is in your lifestyle then it becomes easier but it does take some hard work and discipline you know each day definitely well, Johnny, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Howlin' Rays at howlinrays.com. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.